The text upon which the sermon is based is Romans 3, 25b through 26. Uh, We looked at the first half of 25 last week. Uh, But just for the sake of continuity, uh, I'll read verses 21 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And let us pray together. Dear Lord, we are grateful again for your word. We find uh, in your word the very words of life. And uh, having found them, we know not uh, where else to turn, nor would we wish to. All that we ask, O God, is that you might now add your blessing to the reading and uh, especially through the preaching that you would bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're continuing to unfold this uh, this great statement of salvation as we find in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Up to this point, Paul has been giving us Uh, The bad news, but when he comes to verse 21 of chapter 3, he at last, uh, at long last, comes to the good news of the gospel that he he tells us in chapter 1. He's so eager uh, to preach. Uh, These verses, verses 21 through 26, are, as I've said, uh, you'll read at least in the commentators and in the sermons of uh, some of the the men we look up to. This is uh, perhaps the greatest statement of salvation in the New Testament, but it is also... Uh, in my opinion, it, it stands together with Ephesians chapter one. It's incredibly dense, and there's a lot to a lot to draw out here. The, the great categories of salvation can uh, can just about all be found here. Perhaps not resurrection, but uh, short of that, you have justification, you have righteousness, you have grace, you have propitiation, you have faith, you have reference to the cross, you have reference to our salvation. It, it is such a wonderful, such a rich, and a full statement. But having uh, looked at it up to this point, we now come to the final statement, uh, beginning with the words uh, to demonstrate in the middle of verse 25. We had seen last time in uh, in verse 25, but but seeing verse 24 as the prelude to that, that the one who has faith in Jesus, verse 22, is freely justified by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what he says in verse 24. Which leads Paul to answer the first of two questions, verse 25a, namely, how did God accomplish this redemption which was in Christ Jesus? And his answer, which we considered last time, was uh, propitiation in his blood through faith. And having considered that answer last time in detail, uh, we don't need to repeat those arguments here. But we're interested instead with the second question, which naturally arises at this point. Again, what is in view is the redemption that is found in Christ Jesus. How did God accomplish it? Through the propitiation that is in the blood of Christ through faith. But then secondly, why did God choose this method and not another? Why the cross? Was it really all necessary? This is 
what Paul refers to, uh, and the prophets looking prophetically to this time, as the stone of stumbling upon which the Jews were stumbling. The cross was an offense to them. It was like a stone which God put in their way. They were stumbling over it. Rather than finding salvation, they were missing it, even though it was right in front of them. They weren't embracing it. They were stumbling over it. And yet here was the message of the apostles. It's what they were preaching. It's what uh, those in their, those who are their heirs are preaching still. And yet we find men are stumbling over it still. And it is the message that man is able to find redemption in Christ Jesus by his blood and only by his blood. It is a preaching and a message which places the cross absolutely at the center. It is the center of the preaching, so it is the center of the faith which saves in the hearing of the preaching. The man who puts his faith in Jesus for salvation and trust in the blood is saved. John chapter 3 verse 36. We read, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. That's such a helpful way to put it. The wrath of God is abiding upon mankind. That's what we saw in chapters 1 through 3. But the one who believes in Jesus is brought out from under that wrath into the realm of life. And from Jesus, he receives eternal life. But there are people who cannot accept this. In Paul's day and today, their objection is in essence, uh, and I remember once seeing a debate uh, between Christopher Hitchens and Douglas Wilson. Uh, In essence, this is what he was saying. Do you mean to tell me that God will not accept me into heaven unless I place my faith in his son who died on the cross? You see, he was trying to present God as as very narrow in the scope of his love. Is that really the only way God can love me? Or are you saying from a more theological perspective that it is only possible for God and me to be right and for me to be righteous in his son when I place my faith in him and his blood? In other words, if Christ didn't die on the cross, I could never be right with God. Is that really the gospel that you're preaching? Is God really so narrow? Sometimes we even find Christians putting it this way. That there were many ways God could have saved us, but he chose the way that was most difficult for him in order most clearly to express his love. That's another false gospel. The gospel that Paul preached and the gospel that I'm preaching is that this was the only way. If you were to be reconciled to God ever, ever since man fell into sin, and so not just you, but any man who ever lived, there was only one possible way, and that was for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to take upon our humanity to live a perfect life and then to die as a perfect sacrifice upon the cross, shedding his blood for you and then taking that blood and sprinkling it in the heavenly sanctuary. Yes, that is the claim of the apostles, and that is the claim which is still being made today. And that short of this, there could be no salvation. There would only and ever be wrath of God. It would abide upon you. Just as John says, the one who does not believe the wrath of God rests upon him. You can call that narrow if you like. But that is the gospel. Let us be clear why we are saying this. This is what Paul is defending here. It's what he's explaining But before we look at what he says, let me begin by asking you, 
do you understand why this was the way God chose? Do you see what God is doing at the cross? Remember, it's God who's doing something. It was God, the father, who set forth his son as a propitiation for sin. And do you imagine that God could save us with less, but that he simply chose this as the best of many options, as it's sometimes put? Could something less than the blood of Jesus save you? Could something less than the blood of Jesus Jesus propitiate the wrath of God, which means, as we saw last time, turn it aside? Or do you realize that this was the only way for man to be saved because, this is the key point, because of who God is? And so these are the questions at stake. Paul is well aware of them. We've already seen that Romans is, in essence, just a series of objections that he's answering. He raises them and then he answers them. He states the gospel in chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. But then he has to deal with these many objections. And in doing so, he makes the most uh, convincing case of the gospel in all of scripture. The most thorough case. But we should be clear about the same things. And if we are, if we are aware of the objections and aware at the same time how to answer them, we will not only... Uh, be better evangelists of the gospel because we, like Paul, need to recognize man stands there ready with his objections. He always does. The Christopher Hitchens of the world. They're always ready to ridicule the gospel for this or that reason. But more important than that, if we are aware of these things and aware of the answer, then we'll have an easier time believing them ourselves. And so again, we are answering the question, why did God choose this way? He accomplished redemption By setting forth his son as a propitiation, yes, but why? What was he seeking to accomplish when he delivered his son over to the cross? And here we might be inclined simply to say, salvation. He did so in order to save me. And certainly that is a legitimate answer to the question. But it's not the answer that Paul gives, which tells us that that answer is not sufficient. Nor is it the ultimate reason. The answer he gives in this twofold way... Verse uh, 25b and then verse 26 as two separate answers is that God was demonstrating something about himself to man. Again, we notice the emphasis on the word reveal or demonstrate consistently. It's God who's saying or indicating something to man. He set forth his son in this particular way upon the cross as man's redemption in order. Another word we could use is in order to prove something about himself. To demonstrate it, he says twice. Verse 25, to begin the new phrase, to demonstrate. And then verse 26, to, to, to begin the second phrase, to demonstrate. That's the emphasis of the verses. In other words, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says concerning these verses, there is something more important from the standpoint of what God is doing at the cross than even my salvation, which really we should not have any difficulty accepting. And that category is the character of God or the glory of God, but especially the character of God. That is what, in an ultimate sense, is at stake at the cross. God is revealing himself to man. And what the cross proves or demonstrates or reveals about God to man more than anything else is another familiar category or phrase, and that is the righteousness of God. You notice that in each case. To demonstrate, he set forth his son as a propitiation, one, to demonstrate his righteousness, and two, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. And so, as always, you notice the order and the symmetry and the logic of Paul's mind. We need to be clear what he means here. 
about righteousness. We are always at pains to define our words so that we are not subject to the very confusion that Paul is trying to dispel here. We don't want to be in error as to the gospel. We want to have gospel clarity. And the confusion surrounded these two points. The first, which he's dealing with in the second part of verse 25, verse 26b, is that God passed over sins previously committed. This is what he was talking about at Athens in, in chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verse 30. The times of forbearance which have passed. The, the point uh, which we cannot help but notice, if, we've, if we have any sense of history or biblical history, in any sense at the same time of the majesty of God, is that he had not punished sin, he had not punished man up to this point. He had not given man over to what he deserved. The mere fact that there's a world at all is a testimony to this. The amazing forbearance of God. Almost as though there was no justice. Or at least almost uh, to the point that man is left to conclude that God never really is going to, nor did he intend to punish man. That is the the sinful logic of the sinner, which Peter talks about in in, uh, 2 Peter 3, I think it is. Where, where is uh, the promise of his coming, he says. In forbearing, in other words, the thick, God forbearing sin for so long, never really punishing it, man is left simply to conclude, well then, perhaps God is not so angry and so full of wrath and so just as you claim. That's what he's answering in verse 25. That's the first objection. Where is the justice of God? Seen against the backdrop of his forbearance. But then in verse 26, he's looking... Again, at this amazing claim of the gospel, that God is able to justify the one who has faith. That is, to deal with him as though he were one who was righteous, even though he isn't. Or to put it even more strongly, as we'll soon see in chapter 4, verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. Which is perhaps the most amazing and staggering claim of the gospel in all of the New Testament. He justifies, you see, the one who has faith, that's positive. And we almost think that the man who has faith is something to commend himself to God. But we don't understand justification if we think that. Paul says, let me clarify this for you. The man who has faith, he's ungodly. And that includes Abraham. That includes David. We'll see that as we go into chapter 4. That is, the one who is unrighteous is regarded by God as righteous. He receives from God exactly the opposite of what he deserves. He deserves to be damned, but he's saved. He's unrighteous, but God considers him as righteous. But wait a second, someone says. How can you say that is justice? That God is just when you say he does this. Is that not actually the opposite of justice? Is God not thereby, in justifying the sinner, forgetting his justice and simply turning it on its head? This is another objection to the gospel which people are making. To punish the ungodly, that is justice. But to justify the ungodly, surely that is the exact opposite. How can God said to be just when he does this? We're going to come back to those two objections. But having stated them, when you realize that these are the two objections Paul was dealing with, the the forbearance of God and the justification of God, categories perhaps of mercy but of justice, when you realize that those were the categories Paul was dealing with, or the objections, you realize that the righteousness in view here, again, he set his, his son forth as a propitiation to demonstrate his righteousness. Verse 25, 
to demonstrate it at the present time as righteousness, verse 26. What is the righteousness in view here? Well, it actually has nothing to do with justification. It means something different here. It is not the righteousness he imputes to the believer in justification, which has admittedly been the meaning thus far. And it is the meaning uh, most of the time in Romans. But here, when Paul uses the word, he's talking about something else. And it's obvious that he is. What he's talking about here is not the righteousness which I receive by faith, but he's talking about the character of God. He's telling us what God is like, and he's saying God is someone who is righteous. You can be sure of that. You don't need to doubt it. The righteousness of God, which God is revealing at the cross, is the righteousness of his own intrinsic character, which he is revealing to man. It is, an attri- it is righteousness seen as an attribute. The very thing which men are apt to question about God, given these two things, his, his forbearance and the claim that he is able to justify the ungodly. The very thing that men uh, in their sin claim in response to that is, is, is God really just when you say that? And so that's what is at stake. The righteousness here means the justice of God. For justice is an exercise of his righteousness. It is his own sense of right and wrong. Because sin is wrong, he is determined to punish it. That's what we mean. And that's what we mean when we speak of God's righteousness as an attribute. And so it's clear that that is what Paul means when he speaks of God demonstrating his righteousness at the cross. When he set forth his son as a propitiation for sin. God is is demonstrating, he's proving to man that he really is righteous after all. Even though man is apt to question this about him. And so let us return to those two cases Uh, and look at them a little more closely and see why that is. The first case, again, if you look at verse 25, is the passing over of sins previously committed. What Paul was speaking of in Acts chapter 17, what the writer to the Hebrews was speaking of in Hebrews chapter 9, the sins which were committed uh, prior to the coming of Christ. He says, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because... In his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. What is he talking about? Well, he is talking about uh, the time leading up to the coming of Christ, especially he is talking about the Old Covenant. It's a reference to the Old Testament. And if you look at that story, let us call it the story of the Old Testament, it really is an amazing story, not of the justice of God, but of the forbearance of of God toward the people. In the Old Testament, we see that God never really dealt with sin. He never really dealt with sin in the sense that he dealt with it fully, finally. He didn't deal with the sinner uh, as the sinner deserved. And even the Old Testament Jews seemed to know it. God never pulled out the, poured out the fullness of his wrath upon the Jews. He let them live. He deferred and delayed his justice constantly all the way up to the coming of Christ. There were obviously occasional outpourings of it, but never fully, never finally. That's that's the point. Overall, we would have to say the story of the Old Testament is a story of forbearance on the part of God. A story, in other words, of justice delayed. Not justice revealed, but justice delayed. 
And the unfortunate conclusion that many presumptuous Jews made was that justice delayed actually meant that there was no justice. In other words, that God wasn't going to judge the sinner, certainly not the Jew. They simply were not concerned about the justice of God. They falsely inferred from forbearance that God would always forbear the sinner. Or at least, if we are to be more charitable in the case of some, since men couldn't see this attribute clearly, not as clearly at least as we see it now in light of the cross, they had trouble appreciating it. When they thought of God, justice was not one of the primary categories in their mind. Because, admittedly, God wasn't demonstrating it as clearly then. And the question was, which is an honest question, can God be just when he forbears the sinner? That's a legitimate question. We ought to have an answer for it. But Paul does answer it. The answer that he gives is that God can be just in forbearing the sinner, in putting off the punishment for sin for a time, because now he has demonstrated, uh, demonstrated his justice in this most powerful way at the cross. And he always intended to do it. If you think of the message of the Old Testament, and we've recently seen this in Exodus, God doesn't say that he has no anger, but he does say that he is slow to exercise it. The Lord, the Lord your God, slow to anger, abounding in, uh, in loving kindness, and so on. But he's quick to add in those very verses, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, not to mistake his slowness to anger for the absence of anger. You see, God was even saying it then. I have anger, I'm going to be slow to exercise it, but do not mistake that for forgiveness. Forbearance is not forgiveness. Forbearance is forbearance. He will by no means clear the guilty. But do you realize that at the cross we see both truths come to expression perfectly? Not that God has no anger, but that he was slow to exercise it. That he was waiting. All along God had planned to reveal it at just the right time and in the most surprising way so that there men would no more be able to question whether God was really just or righteous in forbearing sin and the sinner. He did not forget his justice. He was merely slow to exercise it as he said he would be. But once he did, once he demonstrated his righteousness at the cross, who could question it then? Even those whose sins he forbore. But then what about the second case, the justification of the one who has faith? To demonstrate now, verse 26, at the present time, that is now that Christ has died, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is the great claim of the book of Romans. The question is, can that really be just? Can we look upon that and see it as a, an act of justice? Perhaps you will say, as with forbearance, that it is a display of mercy, it is a display of love, it is, is a display of grace. In other words, in some sense, it is the opposite of justice. But a display of justice? Are you suggesting that is what God is demonstrating when he justifies the ungodly who has faith in Jesus? Do you mean to tell me that God is actually righteous in justifying the sinner? How can that be a demonstration of justice? And the answer that Paul gives is that that is precisely what God is demonstrating about himself at the cross. Not only that he is full of compassion and love to the sinner, but that he is perfectly righteous. And 
that he could never justify the sinner. That is, he could never be merciful toward the sinner without exercising his justice and his righteousness to the fullest extent. And so let us see how that is so. How the cross becomes a display of God's justice and his righteousness. A demonstration of the justice of God. And the answer which we find here is that as a propitiatory sacrifice, that's the emphasis of the last sermon. I don't need to repeat it here. Some of you missed it, but it's, it's, it's online. That's a big word. I, I was at pains to define it last time. I'm just going to say it now. It's a propitiatory sacrifice, verse 25a. Christ meets the demands of justice. So that justice was the very thing Christ was revealing to us and God through him. On the cross. And he does so. Going back to verse 25. Not only for the one who has faith at the present time. That is the one to whom Paul is preaching. And the one to whom I'm preaching. The claim of the gospel is that now you might be justified if you have faith. But Paul goes further than that. He says. This is true even for the one who had faith before Christ came. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 15. In the days of forbearance. The blood of Christ can atone for their sin too. And it does. Not the blood of bulls and goats, it's the blood of Christ. That's what justified Abraham. That's what justified David. And he's also saying, from the viewpoint of God, but also from the viewpoint of man, that the blood of Jesus was worth waiting for. God didn't punish sin as it deserved before it was spilled. Because he knew he was going to do this. And he kept telling man that he was going to do this and to look for it. In other words, God had good reason to wait. When we look at his forbearance, do not see him forgetting his justice. He remembered it all along. He had never forgotten it. But he could safely wait until the right time. Even if he knew that all along men would question this very thing about him. Whether he was really just. But look now, Paul is saying, at what God is demonstrating and what he's proving about himself. Look now upon a crucified Savior and what do you see? You see the wrath of God poured out. Not just a spark of it as you see in the Old Testament, but the full flame. You see God's infinite hatred for sin and his determination to punish it. You find a God who is slow to wrath, but who will by no means clear the guilty. A God who is determined to punish sin and who will and who does. You see, in other words, a God who is just and righteous in the fullest sense. And who does not merely, in saving the sinner, let the sinner off. Again, forbearance does not mean forgiveness. Neither does justification mean that. Equating justification with merely God proposing to let the sinner off. No, God has not forgotten his justice. He has not forgotten his law. When he said that the soul that sins shall die and that the wages of sin is death, he meant it. Just as when he said that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there is no forgiveness. And that, beloved, is what is on display at the cross. God is revealing to man his very character. And if Christ did not go to the cross to answer these very demands, then I cannot tell you why he went. What is the answer of the one who suggested is otherwise? How do they account for this amazing display of vengeful wrath upon the very Son of God? What was it that sent him there? Why did God punish him, laying our sins upon him, crushing him for our iniquity, as Isaiah says? What was God accomplishing 
through the blood of his son. Well, perhaps again, you would say our salvation. And again, I would say that you are right, but you are not fully right. Because God was doing something even more important than that. He was demonstrating, Paul says, his own righteousness in forbearing sins previously committed and in justifying the one who has faith. Now we understand what he was doing all along. But you see, these things are only possible because now God has punished sin fully and finally at the cross. And if he had not done so, then he could never have forborne the sin of the old covenant. Nor could he justify a single person now if Jesus had not shed his blood as a propitiation for sin. The righteousness of God would be known, but not in this way. It would be known and seen rather in punishing the sinner for his sin. And that is all we would know of his righteousness. And that is all the sinner will ever know of his righteousness in hell. We would seek to hide from it as, uh, as Revelation says, but we could not. It would come upon us with all its fury and wrath. But when you think of his amazing forbearance in the old covenant, and now that he proposes to justify the man who has faith in Jesus, do you see not only a display of mercy, grace, and love, but do you see especially a display and a demonstration of the righteousness of God? Do you see now a God whose righteousness and whose justice cannot be forgotten by him or questioned by us. Justice delayed does not mean justice forgotten. No, it has been revealed now. The demands of the law have been met. And now God appears just, Paul says, in justifying the sinner. You see, not just merciful, but just. For there he does not propose I say again, to let the sinner off. But to make a full end of his sin by the blood of Jesus. And if he does that, then there is certainly no injustice in that we should be justified freely by his grace. No, it is in the very exercise of justice to the fullest ex extent that he dispenses grace freely to the one who has faith. In fact, as Paul will later say at the end of Romans chapter 8, it would now be unjust for him to hold our sins against us, having already held them against his son on the cross. Yes, the cross is, above all, a display and a demonstration of the righteousness of God. And thank God it is so. For the very word justification conveys the idea that God is dispensing and he's exercising his justice. There was a book I was using quite a bit in the preaching of Hebrews, and there was a quote that I read several times from that book, which came to my mind again here. It's the best work on the cross I've ever read, and that's Hugh Martin's The Atonement. This is what he says, I think capturing the point uh, amazingly well, a display of love and a display of justice all at once. He says, it was no proof to me of, of love on God's part that he should propose to pardon what divine justice did not inflexibly demand should be punished. For to punish where justice does not demand it, demand it savors of cruelty, while to abstain from inflicting what justice does not demand is a poor proof indeed of any great benevolence. But in shedding the blood, in the sacrifice of Christ, I see the glory of God's nature as holy and the inflexible and righteous demand of his justice against sin. I see... Also, a love which proposes to remit an offense, an evil, so great that it deserves eternal woe. I see a love so great as to provide what justice demands. 
a full satisfaction to make remission righteous. Well, that's precisely what Paul is saying here, beloved. We see a remission that is righteous. Not the overturning of God's justice, but a full display of it. In the most amazing and the most striking way. And because that is so, I can no longer question either whether God is willing to justify or whether he is just in doing so. God would have man to know both things about himself. That he is perfectly just in all that he does, but that his justice at the same time does not preclude an exercise of his mercy and grace. But to see that both are indeed on full display at the cross. There God is seen to be just in his mercy and merciful in his wrath. Not that either is tempered by the other, but that in giving full vent to both, each becomes the occasion to express the other. For where God's justice is most clearly seen, there he is also seen to be a God who is full of grace, justifying the ungodly. And where his grace comes to the fullest expression in that act of justification, his justice is on full display Against his son. Or upon his son. And there is thus no contradiction or lessening of the standard. You don't overcome the justice of God. By outweighing it with mercy. That is a false view of God. That is a false view of the attributes of God. Rather we ought to see him at the cross. Giving expression to all that he is. And leaving nothing in doubt. Not his mercy, not his justice, not his wrath, not his love. He's not laying aside attributes, but exercising them all. In pardoning sin, he punishes it. In condemning sin on the cross, he justifies the ungodly. In the death of Christ, we find the sentence of death as a punishment for sin is lifted. There is a perfect symmetry. Which none can deny. God does not act in contradictions. He is not at odds with himself. Never. He is always true to all that he is. His justice and his mercy are not at odds. They both find full expression and perfect expression at the cross. So that just as God demonstrates his mercy in pardoning the sinner, so too he demonstrates at the same time his justice in punishing sin. Which leads us to ourselves once again. The message which Paul preached is not only that this is what God is like, And what he is demonstrating to man. But because that is what God is like. That anyone. Anyone at all can be saved. Because God is able to justify. The worst of sinners. So long as he has faith in Jesus. Who can doubt that. Now that Christ has died. Anticipating the arguments of Romans chapter 8. Verses 31 through 35. Which I'll read again. Perhaps the best summation of this message in the whole book. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So on and so forth. That is the message of the gospel. It is a display, thank God, of the justice of God. Amen. And let us now come to the table.